Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. It was not quite as exuberant a week in the markets as some we've had in the last couple of months, but the rally in both equity and bonds continued this week, buoyed by lower than expected inflation readings on both sides of the Atlantic, meaning that this year is finishing on a strong and positive note. The S&P 500 index was up a modest 0.5% this week, despite a wobble in the middle of the week, and is now within a whisker of matching the all-time high that it reached on New Year's Eve 2021. It's had its longest run of weekly gains since 2017. Over here, the Osha index notched up another 1.7% gain, while the Japanese market also showed strongly. Gilt prices were up across the board, while in the US, shorter but not longer dated treasuries saw their yields decline as well. Oil, copper and gold all edged higher too. The only note of caution about this broad end-of-year rally is that most equity markets now look distinctly overbought on a very short-term view. In this week's podcast, I shall be reviewing the week's news from the investment trust sector and the year to date with Andrew McHattie, editor of the Investment Trust newsletter, and Tom Poynton, who is a director of the wealth management firm Barron and Grant. In next week's podcast, the last of the year, I will be sitting down with Richard Stone, the chief executive of the Association of Investment Companies, to get his take on what I think it's fair to say has been a difficult and challenging year for the investment trust sector but one where a number of more positive recent developments on cost disclosure, for example, and board responses to wider discounts, give hope that better times may lie ahead. The Investment Trust Index, which comprises around 180 of the stocks in the Osha Index, uh, was up a little over 1.6% this week, continuing the strong bounce back that began in the middle of October. The index is now up 11% in the last two months, taking it back almost exactly to where it started the year. The average discount has meanwhile come back to 13.8%, meaning it too is now below its average for the year and at its narrowest since February. Commercial property trusts were again notable amongst the gainers, helped by news of a proposed merger between LXI REIT and London Metric, the latter having already absorbed CT property earlier in the year. Smaller companies specialists were also in demand, I'm happy to say, and around a dozen trusts, including Pershing Square Holdings, Brunner and Tritax Big Box, among the bigger names, hit new one-year highs. Bluefield Solar Income, ticker BSIF, and Octopus Renewables, ticker ORIT, both made important announcements about future growth opportunities. And on a less positive note, there were, as always, more updates from Hypnosis Songs, ticker Song, and Home REIT. As we discuss most of the major results and news announcements in a moment, I won't go over the same ground again here. As always, there's a comprehensive summary of the news in our new weekly email for subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle, together with details of our latest trust profile, that's of JP Morgan UK's smaller companies this week, and commentary on Majedi Investments and a number of other trusts, plus links to other interesting market views and performance data. Thank you to everyone who's offered their feedback on the new email, which seems to have gone down well. 
I have to acknowledge that we have had an issue with the formatting of the email this week. That's, I'm afraid to say, a teething problem, but that will be ironed out next week. So this week on the podcast, I have two guests with me. We're going to talk about the year that's gone and what a year it's been. And we're going to look forward to the future, as well as discussing what's been happening this week, as always, in the investment trust sector, which we both follow. Those two are Andrew McHatty, the editor of the Investment Trust newsletter, well known to listeners on this podcast. And also Tom Poynton, who is a director of uh, Barron & Grant, which is a wealth management firm, a financial advisory firm that invests a lot in investment trusts and who was recently nominated as one of the rising stars of the Investment Trust world in the Investment Week Annual Investment Trust Awards. So we've got a wise old head and we've got, well, a rising star, as I've just said, in the form of Tom Poynton. And there's plenty to talk about this week. We've had a lot of announcements, but I guess we should talk quickly about the markets overall. The markets have been on a bit of a tear since uh, the middle of October, which is good news, long overdue, perhaps. Uh, Do you think this is just a normal Santa rally, Andrew, or is it promising something beyond that as well? Well, it's always nice to finish the year on a better note. So I'm delighted that we have had this quite significant rally in investment trust assets and across markets generally, of course. But I think it's twofold, really, for the investment trust sector, because not only have we seen a good underlying strength in equity markets, but we've also finally seen a bit of a narrowing of the average discount in the sector into about 13.8%. Whereas we were talking about levels of 15 or 16 percent a couple of months ago. So this is extremely welcome and I hope augurs well for next year. We'll have to see about that and obviously we'll discuss that in due course. Tom, what's your feeling? You've got a little bit of a jauntiness in your step now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I actually ran some stats this morning. We've obviously seen it in our investment trust focus portfolios, but the FTSE All Share Closed End Index is actually now up, thankfully. And since the 27th of October, the index is up about 13.17%. So it's still trailing in contrast, unfortunately, to the likes of the S&P 500, up circa 19, MSCI World, circa 17, and the FTSE at 7.4. But as Andrew acknowledged, that discount has moved in this morning. It was 13.8 over the last month, averaged about 15 and for the first time, probably since the global financial crisis, the average investment companies faced a double-digit discount through the year. It's been about 14.7. So there's still some notable sector discounts in there. I looked this morning again at infrastructure and renewable energy infrastructure as a couple of sectors that are still trading much wider than they have probably for the past decade. The infrastructure is slightly skewed by probably Digi9 in there. But Lots of opportunities, I think, for the year ahead. And hopefully we might look back at the end of October, start of November as hopefully being a turning point for the sector. Indeed. And of course, I guess to the extent that everything has been driven by what's happened to interest rates, we'd be looking out to see what happens to interest rates in 2024. Obviously, the markets have got quite excited about the prospect of the Fed actually cutting rates next year. And so if we do get a decline in interest rates, you would think that would continue to be positive for investment trusts, would you not, Andrew? Unless, of course, it's already in the price. Well, this is a very big question. And for me, actually, the path of interest rates has been the overriding important factor in 2023, which has really served to quash the value of investment trusts in a number of ways. There are quite a few transmission mechanisms, actually, for interest rates to lead into changes in share prices. And I think if you read around the subject, first of all, you're likely to get quite confused because it's inevitable. There's a wide range of forecasts for the coming year. 
But I think now the market is shifting towards some kind of consensus that we're going to see rate cuts next year. But there's still quite a variety there. So on the one hand, you have some forecasters saying, well, we could have actually five cuts in interest rates next year. Others are saying, actually, we're not likely to see any movement at all until the fourth quarter. So there's a lot to play for yet, and we'll have to see. But I think fundamentally, if we do have a background of at least stable and hopefully falling interest rates, that's got to be helpful for these sectors that have been so squashed this year. And really, we're looking at sectors such as renewable energy and infrastructure and growth capital, where the values have really come down a lot and the discounts have widened out. And I think a great deal of that is down to interest rates. So I'm quite hopeful, actually, of a much better background that should serve us well in the coming year. I think, Tom, uh, on that point, I guess the only potential cloud on the horizon is the fact that uh, so many people have already positioned themselves for lower interest rates next year. It's the most crowded trade, according to the latest Bank of America survey. Everybody thinks interest rates are coming down further. And that could, of course, lead to some disappointment if it doesn't actually happen. As a contrarian, I might wonder whether that's too much of a consensus of position. What do you think about interest rates? Have you got a view on that? Or are you uh, just hoping to see where we land? I agree with what Andrew's just said. I think from the sector's point of view, uh, an article that the AIC produced was particularly when the the average sector discount was as wide as it was in 08, the average investment company returned 39% over the next year and circa 120% over the next five years. Obviously, that's caveated with past performance being no guide to the future and, and the standard disclaimers. But I think with some of the discounts in those sectors that Andrew mentioned, as we know, when sentiment begins to turn, asset values start to rise and those discounts start to narrow, you do get that double whammy of performance and that's where the, the turbocharged nature of those returns you know, can come from. I know we're probably going to come to the cost disclosure debate and an update on that, but I think what's interesting is I think the interest rates have obviously had a big impact uh, and the pace of those rises have had a big impact on the sector. But I also think that the cost disclosure debacle, as I call it, has had a, a material impact as well. And it's difficult to discern which has probably had the bigger impact. But A recent meeting at the House of Lords hosted by Baronesses Altman and Bowles, who are doing some fantastic work on this, gave a little bit more insight. I didn't attend the meeting, it was Chatham House Rules, but it has been reported on since. But one of the biggest multi-asset investors with billions invested in investment companies confirmed they'd half their investment company holdings in large part because of the double counting on costs in their fund disclosures. And there were similar tales from wealth managers, fund of funds, with one wealth manager reporting that it sold all its client positions because of the issue. And at the end of the day, we need demand for the sector. And it's that institutional demand as retail has become more prevalent now on share registers that I think has been lost from the sector. And they've had this cost disincentive to allocate. So I think that the resolution of that is also huge for 2024. I think because of the pools of capital that can access and OK, we can talk about consolidation and buy lists and wealth managers. But particularly in some of the infrastructure, renewable energy infrastructure, I think it's Because optically, they've got OCFs, which are 1% and and 2%, that it's those allocations that some of those larger institutional managers have decided to cut. That's obviously coincided at a time when they've been used as bond proxies. uh, And obviously, there's perhaps a, a more attractive return from fixed income now. But as said, it's just difficult to discern which has had the bigger influence. And the only way that it gets resolved is that the OCF of listed investment companies needs to be recognized as zero. 
that is how it gets resolved. EMT data templates, which is the European MIFID template, which has to be completed by the trust and sent to the fund providers, is the data that's relied upon by retail investors and platforms. And you're not going to be able to access that demand unless this cost disclosure is rectified and that reads null. So just a slightly different view uh, from somebody, you know, that's influenced by this every day and deals with it at the coal face. Because when we're selling this and trying to attract demand from financial advisors, you won't get through the door with the optics of the cost at the moment. And with one fell swoop of regulators pen, that can go when the conversation is much different. And, and I think it's really important that people understand that and the opportunity that exists thereafter to help support the demand and obviously try and drive that discount in from where it is now. So, Andrew, the question, of course, is, uh, as Tom said, well, it'd be great to have this issue resolved. We're not absolutely certain it has been resolved yet in the sense that I think the position is the government said it's going to introduce a statutory instrument that is going to allow the FCA to turn a blind eye to things until they finally sort this out. What's your understanding of the position? And is it actually certain that we're going to see this happen in the next 12 months, given there's an election coming up as well? Yes, I think we might come back to the subject of elections if we're looking forward to the prospects for the year. And that could come into play. But I think, no, actually, the wheels are in motion now and we're well on the road to a resolution. So I'm very optimistic that we will get to a resolution here. Now, whether that will actually be the final result that everybody wants is a slightly different question. But I think actually we'll probably find some way of fudging our way through it so that we get to a better place than we're currently at. And my feeling is that this issue will probably go away and fade into the background and we'll all get back to business as usual because it's clearly been flagged now as an issue and I think there's a will to deal with it. Yes, that would be my interpretation too. There's one other factor we might just talk about in the investment trust sector and I'm interested in your views on how important this has been as well obviously not unconnected to what we've been talking about, and that is the public emergence of cyber capital and other activist investors in the sector, sniffing out discounts, which they think are too wide, and putting pressure on boards to do something about it. How significant a factor do you think that's been in changing sentiment towards investment trusts, and how will that play out next year as well, do you think? Andrew, give me your thoughts on that one. The only surprise for me was that it took so long, actually, for an arbitrageur to come in, because we've seen this before in previous cycles, And I think actually Saba has achieved something quite significant in a very short space of time because it really has drawn a lot of media attention and I think it's helped to shine a spotlight on these wide discounts. What is interesting is that Saba has, of course, targeted the equity sector of the investment trust market because it's really looking for trusts that have liquid portfolios where they can affect change very rapidly. Whereas the widest discounts are, of course, in the alternative sector, which is somewhat different. But nevertheless, I think Saab has had a big impact already. It's possible, of course, that if discounts don't come in rapidly next year, then we might see more arbitrageurs come in. And looking at the data from past occasions where discounts have been wide, actually the recovery has not tended to be V-shaped. It's tended to be quite slow and discounts have come in over a multi-year period. So it's not too late for more arbitrageurs to come in. And I expect to see a bit more rationalisation in the sector, or at least a lot more noise and a few more arguments. What do you take away from all the activity we've had? It has certainly put the investment trust sector uh, in the spotlight, that's for sure. Yeah, I think Anthony Leatham was on the podcast a, a week or so ago talking about monitoring the positions and as you say, the trusts that were being targeted and most have some sort of realisation event in line with European opportunities, for instance, being the first one. 
And I think they're going to look to try and apply pressure in similar ways to the trust that they have targeted. So that was quite interesting. But look, tends to be quite smart money that is coming in looking for these. Yeah, there's not many arbitrage opportunities that exist in financial markets these days with the amount of data and the the way that particularly hedge funds and the like process that data and take positions. So I think it's put the spotlight onto the sector from a global point of view. Some might be looking at the UK as a global discount play. And within that, there's almost a discount squared opportunity within the investment trust sector. So I agree with everything that's been said. And and I think there'll probably continue to be some activism and other players that, that start looking at the space. Let's switch to talking for the moment about what's been happening and what we've learned this week before we come back at the end to talk about the outlook a bit further. You mentioned the word consolidation. We've heard more news this week about potential consolidations. So let's talk about one of those, Octopus Renewable Energy, which is proposing to get together with another renewable energy trust, Aquila European Renewables. What do you make of this one, Andrew? This is slightly unusual because nearly all of the consolidation deals that we've seen have been agreed deals and they've been announced in the market once most of the terms have been organised and agreed by all parties. In this case, it's different. Now, Aquila European Renewables has been on the block, if you like, for some time, really since June when it had a continuation vote and there was a significant dissenting vote there of about 25%. And I think since then, there's been quite a lot of discussions and some speculation about what might happen to the trust. And now Octopus Renewables Infrastructure has come in with an offer to merge really on an asset for asset value basis. And it's a bigger trust. It's £500 million of market cap against about 240 for Aquila. So that makes sense. It also makes sense from a discount perspective because the discount on Aquila is about 30% and it's about 16% for Octopus. So there's a a potential uplift here for the Aquila shareholders. And we've seen that reflected in the market with about a 7% rise in the shares on this news. But it's not a done deal. And the Aquila board has said it won't reach a decision until next year. So we'll have to wait and see if they recommend it or not. My sense is that Octopus would not have made this offer without significant contact with major shareholders. So my feeling is it's likely to go through. Do you have anything to add to that, uh, Tom? Is this one you've been following closely? Yeah, I saw the news this morning. I think it probably fits in in the level of corporate activity this year that the direction for travel is fewer but bigger in the sector and, and boards are under ever increasing scrutiny to achieve that aim, really. As Andrew says, I, I think it probably will receive support, particularly from the institutional shareholder base. And Oric does trade at an error of discount relative to Aquila. So, yeah, it will create a bigger vehicle uh, that helps marketability. And it's perhaps a timely time in the sector for them to be able to market that if it's successful. Andrew, just on that, I mean, part of this is that Aquila European obviously has a European mandate and Octopus is one of these uh, generalist renewable energy managers. Some people have said, you know, we've got a lot of UK-focused renewable energy trusts. Do you think there's actually a market for something which has a rather broader mandate? Well, I, I think sentiment has shifted a little bit here because for a long time, I think trusts taking on overseas exposure were considered to be adding risk. And that was a bit of a negative. And people always then question the currency exposure and the difficulties of operating in overseas markets. But I think more recently, particularly as power prices in the UK have been under pressure, we've seen a bit of a shift there. 
And now this international diversification is seen as a bit of a plus. So this, I think, follows that trend. And yes, I think there's a bit of an appetite now for further international diversification. Well, let's talk also about uh, another Renewable Energy Trust, a Bluefield Solar Income Fund. BSIF is the ticker for this one. They've also put out an announcement, a slightly different kind of flavour to this one. Perhaps you could fill us in on that one as well, uh, Andrew, what the details are and what the significance of it is, or maybe. I think to understand this one, we need to take a little step back to the origination of this renewables infrastructure sector which was really founded on the ease of capital raising. We remember those days when you could actually raise money from IPOs and and then come back to the market for more. And this was the model, actually, that initial funds would be invested and then these funds would come back to the market for another tranche of capital and invest that and then keep doing that and keep growing until they became actually quite large trusts. And for the early movers in the market, that worked very well. But of course, Now capital markets are largely shut and that's impossible to do. And so you've now got these trusts actually that have very nice pipelines of opportunities. They have the expertise, they have nice models, but they just can't get the cash. And so I've spoken to a few lately actually managers in the sector where they've said, well, there are ways around this. We can perhaps form some partnerships with other people who can provide some capital And that's a way of us actually proceeding with some of these opportunities in our pipeline. And that's really what Bluefield's done here. It's got together with a company called GLIL, and they are essentially providing the cash for Bluefield to to go ahead and proceed with some of its portfolio assets. So they're getting together initially to acquire a 247 megawatt portfolio of solar assets. And this could be the beginning of something greater. And I have a feeling we're going to see more of these partnerships arising because they make sense. It's a way around this capital restriction issue that so many of these trusts have. And with reference to what you were saying earlier, Tom, about the need to bring back institutional investors, this partner they're going they're going into partnership with, it consists mainly of local authority pension funds, as I understand it. So this is an example where, you know, we've always said for a long time, we need pension funds to invest in the UK, and investment trust is a good way to do that. So do you think this might be a significant harbinger of, of other kind of views about pension funds getting back into this sector, having deserted it for many, many years on the whole? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes back to the point that Andrew's just made there in this new environment where trusts are trading at discounts relative to trading at premiums for the past probably decade or so, that they are being more creative and they're looking at how they find new opportunities and, and recycle capital effectively and accretively, I suppose. And you know, it's really important. And I think it will serve them well, hopefully, as this sort of storm passes going forward. And they'll have earned their coin, for want of a better description, in in this new environment. As other news has come out this week, IMPP and the like, all of them are changing the lens as to how they look to manage into this new environment. And I think that's really important going forward. At the moment, obviously, a lot of inflation, linkage and the like in these portfolios. So cash generation is really good, but it might take them interest rates next year, as we've already talked about, softening for discount rates to soften and net asset values, obviously, to be reflected for the demand to return. But I think in the meantime, on the whole, they tend to be doing a good job. And there is evidently still robust demand for these assets and the sectors. Andrew, do you have some favourites in the renewable energy sector? What are your thoughts about Bluefield Solar now, having put forward this interesting deal? How do you rate the other trusts in the sector? I mean, Greencoat UK Wind, there's been interesting news this week about the wind development in the UK. 
and obviously Foresight Cell, another well-established renewable trust. What are your thoughts about those leaders in the sector? Well, there's lots of good value here. And Bluefield actually is a trust I like very much. I followed it right since its inception and talked to the manager every six months or so all the way through. And they've been very consistent, actually. So I think that's a trust that's been very straightforward from the beginning and has actually delivered on all of its promises. And there's a great deal to be said for that. And it's worth paying a little bit extra for that sometimes. But of course, inevitably, one is looking at the discounts in this sector because they are so wide. Now, my feeling on Greencoat UK Wind is that that is the go-to trust for larger investors here because it's clearly got a much larger market cap than most of the players in the sector. And I think it's considered as blue chip as you can get in this green sector. But for me, actually, that's not necessarily the best pick at this time because it's still actually got some risk attached to it because it's quite sensitive to changes in power prices And it's on a much narrower discount. So I think it depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for something quite solid and reliable, then it may be that you go for something like Bluefield or Greencoat UK Wind. If you're looking to benefit from the potential revaluation of the sector, then I think there are many things that actually, as perhaps not quite as solid, but have great potential from the discount side of things. So if you're looking there, there's things like US Solar Fund, which has had its difficulties, but I think is now more firmly based with its new manager and actually had some good news this week and an uplift in NAV. And that's on a 37% discount. And there are many more, actually, that are on similar ratings. Tom, do you have any thoughts about this? I'm sure you have some of these trusts in your portfolios that you run for clients. Yeah, we like the sector. Obviously, it's been punished and it's hard to carry clients through that and nurse some of the losses from where they started at those sort of single digit premiums or or even double digit premiums. But I think there is just some great risk adjusted returns to be had from the levels that we're at at the moment. And in the meantime, there is still good yields that are being paid, covered yields on these trusts. And in the case of Greencoat UK Wind, their increase in dividend was well ahead of inflation. And you're being paid to wait for that recovery, really, is almost what we're saying to clients at the moment. And as said, As we get through the interest rate cycle, as discount rates soften, that's going to help on the NAV side of things. And I think they'll start to tick up and demand will start to return again. So as I said, I just think as tips for sort of 2024 are going, I think these two sectors in particular could have a good year going forward. Okay, so let's move on then. And for those of us who've been listening to the podcast for a long time, you'll know that there's one trust which has been mentioned more often than any other in the whole course of the last (laughs) three years or so that we've been doing this, and that is Hypnosis Songs Fund. It used to be in the news for the right kind of reason, and recently it's been in the news for the wrong kind of reason. It's become a very complicated, drawn-out saga. We heard more this week. It was quite an interesting week as far as Hypnosis Songs is concerned. Andrew, I'm going to go to you first. You've been following this like I have for a long time. (laughs) This one just goes on and on, doesn't it? Well, it does. And we've had two new chapters this week. First of all, we had the trust saying it was going to delay the announcement of its results. And then secondly, actually, just two days later, we had the announcement of those results with an NAV that was down 9.2%. But that's an NAV that was provided by the valuers Citroen Cooperman. And of course, there's been quite a lot of focus on them and their approach here and the fact that they haven't changed the discount rates in spite of rising interest rates. So there's been a lot of scepticism in the market about that valuation. That's been very well known. And I think virtually 
everyone who follows this trust has cast doubt on that valuation. But now the board has done so as well. And this was the reason for the delay in the results announcement, that the board said it had requested uh, some comment on this from its managers and that they were very slow to provide that and, and then provided a very heavily caveated response. Effectively, what they said now is that, well, this is the NAV that's been calculated, but we think investors should approach it with a higher degree of caution and less certainty than you might normally do, which is not tremendously helpful, I must say. But what I found really interesting here was that the shares actually barely reacted to any of this news this week. And I think that tells us a couple of things. First of all, this news is already in the market and there was nothing really new here. We'd all been doubting this valuation for some time. And I think the second aspect of this is that it's quite hard to know how you would trade hypnosis because actually it's very difficult to rate it a buy at this point because there's so much uncertainty around. But it's also quite difficult to rate it a sell because even if you're a bit sceptical about that NAV, the shares are on a 50% discount. So you don't need actually all of that value to be recovered to get a decent return from here. So the saga continues. There'll doubtless be more of this to come. We're going to be talking about this again next year, Jonathan. I suppose in terms of the way forward from here, there is a new chairman, there is a new board, or at least a partially reconstructed board, and they're obviously trying very hard to get to grips with what is a very complicated situation. But surely the key to this, Tom, is essentially they've got to come to some conclusion as far as the management arrangements are concerned. Hypnosis Songs Management, the management firm that manages this, founded and run by the mercurial Mercuriales, shall we say. (laughs) It's complicated by the fact that they have this option to acquire the portfolio, isn't it? So basically, they've got to hammer out some sort of deal with the management company or basically fire them, and that could lead them into a legal quagmire. So it's still quite a complicated situation, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the evident degree of acrimony between the board and the investment advisor is obviously quite rare to witness, as we have done this week. But I think the body of evidence is trying to be built to allow that management contract to either be terminated or renegotiated. And as you say, critically, the option for the manager to acquire the portfolio for six months after termination. But no doubt that would come with a big legal battle thereafter and challenge. But I think the reconstituted board with the likes of Christopher Mills on board, obviously Robert Naylor has wasted no time in getting to grips with it and the relationship with hypnosis, song management. And I go to the point that you've already made. All the news this week was in the price. I think it's a difficult asset class to value, <laughs> as evidenced by the independent value of themselves. But even with the revised net asset value, circa 48% discount still, I think there's either hedge funds or arbitrages or music industry specialists that are going to be looking to see whether they're going to start filling their Christmas stockings, perhaps with some shares. Because I think the reality is the portfolio worth is probably north of a pound a share versus current share price of 70 pence, really. But it's not for widows and orphans. There's so much volatility that's likely to remain. But hopefully investors are likely to get some more clarity in the coming months from the due diligence and the discussions on the future of the company. Is there a general point here, though, we can think about, essentially, it appears now with hindsight that when this trust was launched, which was obviously a few years ago now, there should have been perhaps slightly more attention paid to the way that it was constructed, the management arrangements and so on, even while accepting that, you know, valuing this new asset class, essentially, was always going to be difficult. Do you think that that's a valid point to make, Andrew? 
It's hard to argue with that, really, isn't it? Now, knowing what we know now. And I suppose this is actually, as you say, a lesson to be taken forward because IPO markets tend to be quite excitable. And this was really something very new and dramatic. And of course, it came with a certain amount of pizzazz. And so I think maybe investors didn't look too carefully at the details because fundamentally, this was such an interesting idea. And this is why it's so disappointing that it's turned out as it has. Because the idea that you could have these uncorrelated assets producing this very nice steady income, something that's completely different from the rest of your portfolio. And it was a new market, effectively, that Mercuriadis created. I mean, he, he really stimulated this entire market. And it looked as if it made really great sense. So it was very seductive, I think. And I think when you have a proposition that is really so shiny and exciting, it's very easy not to look into all of the facts. But it's not just actually that people didn't want to delve into the facts, it's that those weren't actually made available. There was quite a lot of hidden information here that hasn't come out until now. And so I think in terms of transparency, there are lessons to be learned. And I'm not sure anything's changed on a regulatory front since then. So it's possible this could recur and we might just go through the same cycle again, where we buy into new IPOs in a thrilling new sector, and then they ultimately disappoint us. Yeah, and it's not as if we don't see that across the whole markets, of course, whole equity markets. We often see things launch, which turn out to be uh, not quite as wholesome as they appear to be. Well, that was a nice sort of lead into, I'm afraid, the need to discuss yet another trust that we'd rather not be talking about, which is Home REIT, obviously a trust which was very popular when it was uh, launched. It appeared to be doing something very good for a very important cause, which is providing accommodation for the homeless. That proved very popular. It came back to the market twice to raise more money after the initial IPO. And yet it's turned out to be, well, I can't think of a better word than a disaster, basically. It's been a disaster and it's an ongoing disaster. The shares are still suspended while the board, again, tries to sort out the mess. What have we learned this week about Home REIT, uh, Andrew, and what do you make of that? Well, you're right, Jonathan. This is the other real stinker as a sector. And uh, we're both a bit fed up probably talking about it. But of course, we need to do so. It's important for two reasons. First of all, for those shareholders who are still stuck here, unable to trade their shares and wondering what value they'll finally be left with. And secondly, of course, for the broader question of what the sector can learn from this. Anyway, the current position is that the new managers, AEW, are still sifting through the wreckage. And I must say, at this time of year, it's not much fun for them to unwrap what they found here. What they have done, very importantly, is produced a new valuation of the properties. And without any surprise at all, this was not very good. It was actually £413 million, which means there's a loss of 58% from the acquisition cost, which is pretty significant. It unearthed other difficulties as well. So it found that many more tenants were in the private rented sector rather than in the homeless accommodation sector backed by local authorities. So again, that was not really what was intended. And the managers have been busily checking the state of these properties, which is really poor in many cases, and they sold off some of the worst ones. So they have sold 80 of these properties uh, which is about 3.6% of the portfolio. They just sold them at auction for £16 million, which is, again, a very poor figure compared to the purchase price. 
So none of this is good news, but it is progress. And we are edging our way towards a time when the shares can be quoted again and, and actually shareholders can then make a decision about what to do. There is one outstanding element to this as well, which is, of course, where you began, that this has not worked out at all well. And there is some question about the culpability of the management here. And there's a potential legal claim against the former managers, which is ongoing. And I'm sure we don't want to discuss that in any detail here. But again, this is a story that's going to rumble on for some time. Yes, so it is a story. And as you say, there is going to be, we would think, almost certainly legal action to follow at some point. Because as you say, this week, we also learned that not only was the property's valuation was <laughs> ridiculous, but also that some of this property wasn't even what it was meant to be. And that's pretty damaging as well. And you have to think that uh, there are lots of questions to be asked of all sorts of parties here, not just the original board, but the original management team, and also the advisors who helped bring it to the market, despite an apparent conflict of interest. So the whole thing has been a disaster. It's a bit of a blot on the horizon. But as you say, the next step, I think, Tom, is for them to actually publish some audited results, not just for the, the last year, but the year before that as well, which is also in question. And then finally, as you say, the shares can be relisted and we'll find what level they're at. But the kind of sales that have happened so far suggest that it's going to be obviously some significant way below where it was when the shares were suspended let alone from when the high of the share earlier than that. Would that be your take on this? Yeah, and the audit process remains ongoing, subject to completion of the valuation process, the continual internal inspection process, the application of revised accounting policies back to inception, and, and hence it's not in a position to publish a, an estimated NAV. I think, unfortunately, we've just talked about Song and we're talking about Home now, the wider reputational damages that some of these stories have had this year and, and these corporate governance blow-ups that have not helped at a time of a perfect storm for the sector. But I think on the whole, hopefully that isolated incidences, they need to be learnt from, from a corporate governance point of view going forward. And hopefully it doesn't inhibit that IPO market or other trusts coming to market in the future. But it's definitely going to put more spotlight on those. And I think that's probably a good thing. I think we've got to evolve out of this position as the sector is doing anyway by level of corporate activity and, and Darwinism that has happened this year. But we've got to use these as examples to make for better outcomes going forward and not let them just cast a broad stroke against the corporate governance of all of the sector, really. But they're creating more noise than some of the better things that are going on at the moment. And I think we must recognise and, and appreciate that. You're obviously right. It would be a great relief not to have to talk about that anymore. Uh, but it would be nice to see that this is resolved and that whatever justice is required is in due course delivered. We also had an announcement this week from another trust, this one in the commercial property sector. This is LXI REIT, which is potentially the subject of a merger with another property company. What can you tell us about this one, Andrew? Yes, in this case, LXI REIT is potentially merging with London Metric, which has already been active in this sector. It acquired CT Property Trusts earlier in the year. And I think this is just part of the ongoing consolidation, actually, of this property sector. There's only an 8% discount on LXI, so I don't think there's too much to go for in terms of the extra returns in the short term. But this is an indication that this is a sector that I think needs some rationalisation. There is, again, quite considerable benefits of consolidation in terms of the size of the trust going forward. And so, again, we'll probably see a bit more of this going into the new year. 
So the shares on that one are up a little bit this week, about 5% or 6% this week. I'm going to be asking you, Tom, whether this is something that you have in your portfolios as well. It is quite an attractive investment class and quite an attractive investment strategy in this case, but it has been very heavily marked down during the great derating of the last two years, is it not? Yeah, and I think we'll come on perhaps to uh, some of the best and worst moves of the year. And I think we bought into commercial property quite early into the cycle as it continued to sort of derate. But I think, again, from the level of discounts at the moment, there is a lot of asset management in some of the trusts at the moment. And again, they're just trying to work the portfolios. They're trying to perhaps trim some of the fat off the underlying portfolios and improve them into hopefully what is going to be a more conducive market going forward. And we've got Aberdeen Property. Jason Bagley is doing a good job there. And they were probably plagued by the debt and the, the time at which they uh, refinanced the debt and then got caught out or refinancing it again. And that, I think, still hangs over probably a couple you know, of trusts in the sector again. But really, it's that certain outlook now and what they're doing to work the portfolio, improving the energy ratings of the portfolios, uh, re-signing leases, what level have they re-signed them, and ultimately it's dependent on how the underlying portfolio is constructed, uh, whether it be industrials, offices and things like that. But yeah, again, from where the sector is at the moment, I think there'll be some good risk-adjusted returns that can be generated going forward, particularly into next year. Andrew, on that, uh, the commercial property trusts have bounced back quite strongly, but they have come down a long, long way, have they not? Tracking the movements in uh, in gilts and interest rates uh, and a little bit more in the case of some of these uh, longer duration property assets. Yes, I think Tom's comments were spot on. And, and so many of us actually jumped into commercial properties far too early and are regretting it slightly, but nevertheless feeling that the prospects from here look quite good. Commercial property is the most interest rate sensitive sector of all. And so that's why, essentially, it had a very bad year. And potentially, it could have some more bad news to come if the outcome of the higher interest rates is to cause an economic recession. And then, of course, you get demand falling off and it's not easy to let your properties and income goes down and then you get difficulties with your covenants and your debt. So you never know how this might play out. But I think fundamentally, there's a lot of great value in the sector And if you can just look through the difficulties of this year and look forward to reducing interest rates, then I think potentially commercial property is a sector where we'll see some of the largest returns to come. You have to be a little bit brave still, because if you're looking at these trusts now, they look pretty awful if you're looking back at what's recently happened. Well, we had Marcus Fairmudge on the podcast not so long ago. He, to be fair, was also early into this. He was talking about the fantastic value in the sector back in April this year. And in fact, it then got worse for three or four months. Uh, But he's done particularly well. And that's always a good way, a sort of geared play on the property sector. I see that over the last two months, I mean, TR property is up 30% or so, which is better than all the other commercial property trusts. So that's always an interesting way to to play this particular sector. Are you a fan of TR property, um, Andrew? I am. Actually, TR Property is a trust we've covered for years and years. And Marcus and his team do a good job there because actually very often we find that if you compare TR Property, which is, of course, taking stakes almost entirely in the equities of property firms, that has tended to outperform the direct investors over a long period. It's a bit different because many of the direct investors in property are offering you a high yield and TR property doesn't. So we're not comparing apples with apples here. But actually, if you're looking at your total return, then TR property serves you very well over a long period. 
And so to some degree, you don't need to be any more clever than that. It's a good trust and it's done well. And also has been instrumental, as we know, in a couple of these deals that have actually uh, realised some value for investors. Has it not, Tom? Yeah, and I'd go back to what Andrew has just said there, really. I think in terms of we look at our mandates, income and, and growth side of things, often people are looking for the yield to be paid off. Uh, we use a natural yield strategy. So that's where some of those high yield in commercial property plays help. But I think growth mandates, something like TR property, suits well to get a sort of a one-stop shop to access all of those underlying companies, really. And, and Marcus has done a great job of that. And as we talk about cost, it's a relatively cheap cost-effective way to access that as well. Well, we've had some other results out this week. I don't think we've got time to talk about those in particular, unless you want to mention them under another heading. Uh, we heard from MyGo Opportunities. We've heard from Majedi Investments. We've heard from Polar Capital Global Healthcare and a couple of others. And uh, you can find the details of those in our weekly newsletter for the Moneymakers Circle subscribers. But let's just quickly then finish off by looking back at the year and also looking forward. And uh, let's talk about your highlights of the year. Tom, why don't you go first on this one? Apart from, of course, being nominated for the uh, award I mentioned at the top of the programme, which, of course, thoroughly deserved. Oh, well, thanks. But uh, it's been a tough year. I mean, I'm obviously quite young, I suppose, in my experience of the sector. And uh, there was a great piece that Alan Brearley wrote from Investec, actually. It was on CityWire that was investment companies must listen if they want to survive. And I think in that he acknowledged in his 30 years in the sector that it's probably been the toughest environment that he's ever known. So it'll probably be one of the most formative and valuable years of my career in the sector. We deal in investment trust focused portfolios and uh, managing private client money and being on the receiving end of trying to take people on this journey of different sectors and, and interest rates and discount rates and how the journey may play out and discounts widening and well, they'll, they'll narrow and where are they relative to history and the opportunity? All of that is in the melting pot. And hopefully the storm doesn't last forever. And as we get out to the other side, I, I just think there is some fantastic opportunity for people. And it's about a wider audience access in this sector, I think. Everything is driven around consumer outcomes now. And, and I think if you are currently holding things that trade at net asset value, you have the ability to buy perhaps even the same underlying at a discount at the moment. And I just hope more people take note of that. To the informed, it's a rational decision, but we must do more to market the sector wider to people because we know how it performs over the long term. And it's trying to let other people access that performance, I think, really. So, yeah, that's a bit of a backdrop for me. I'm looking forward to 10 days break over the Christmas period to refresh and recuperate ahead of a, hopefully a good 2024. Yes, I think it's fair to say the challenge, obviously, during periods like this, which has been exceptional even by investment trust standards, is to keep people travelling with you, to continue to convince them that actually investment trusts are a worthwhile way to invest and indeed a good way to invest. But you do have to invest the long term and you do have to uh, have faith in the structure and the ability of it to reinvent itself and reform when necessary. Andrew, you'll know that as well as anybody. What are your reflections on the year as a whole that we've just been through? It certainly had its challenges, and we've talked about those at length, of course, on a regular basis. But actually, I see lots of good things that have happened in this last year. To begin with, actually, in spite of all of the difficulties that have principally been in the alternative asset sector, 2023 was a decent year for most equity markets around the world. And so we saw equity investment trusts on the whole deliver positive returns. And against a tough economic backdrop, I think that's not bad at all. And I'm also greatly encouraged, actually, by the way the sector has responded to all of these difficulties. 
that we've seen this in past cycles, actually. You know, very little of this is really brand new. We've been through it before. And the investment trust sector does have a way of reinventing itself and refreshing and rationalising and coming back stronger. There's been a great deal of work done by boards and by managers and by plenty of other market participants this year to make sure that the investment trust is healthy going forward. So I'm greatly encouraged by that. We've had a lot of difficulties, but people are working through these. And I think the sector will overcome and will progress actually quite well. And then just on a more practical basis, there's a third point, which is while some of these asset values have been so depressed this year, this has been a tremendous opportunity to pick up these trusts on discount ratings and also to bolster the yield on your portfolio. I can't remember a time when I've been able to buy trusts on yields of 9 or 10% in many cases. And even if you go down the risk spectrum, you've been able to pick up trusts on 6 7 8% yields well ahead of inflation. So there's been plenty of good things, actually, for long-term investors here. I think there's just, as Tom said before, a lot of short-term noise, and that's a bit distracting. But overall, actually, it's been reasonable. Yes, I mean, it's fair to say that I think, picking up on your point, because we're in the investment trust sector, we've had this big issue around discounts. It feels like it's been a very bad year. But as you say, there's something like 200 investment trusts have delivered a positive total return this year. So even if you have any kind of diversified portfolio, there have been returns to be made, and indeed some spectacular returns. I mean, we have to give perhaps a mention to uh, 3i, which has had an absolutely extraordinary year and an extraordinary five years, really. I can't remember anything really quite like it for such a large vehicle to deliver those kind of returns. This year, I mean, it's up, uh, what, 85% or something, the total return from 3i this year. Trades on a big premium. It's not something you would think at the beginning of the year that you really wanted to buy into because of the premium. That's been astonishing, hasn't it, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, quite interesting. The share price performance, as we know, is what matters. Actually, the NAV performance hasn't been as strong as the 85%. I think it's, it's been more modest than that. And anything trading at a premium now, given what we've just been through, leaves me a little bit wary. Action has obviously been a, an incredible investment from that private equity space. As I sit here now, I'm just wary of concentration risk on a holding like that. It may continue to sail upwards and, and fantastic, but there will be a point where that levels itself out. And I think I would just be wary of anything trading at premium, as we've seen before from the likes of Scahalian and, and Linsel Train and, and things like that, particularly when there's so many discount opportunities there where sentiment is trailing fundamentals. I think just a special mention for one that I wrote is Pantheon. I thought Pantheon was remarkably candid and refreshing in the way that John Singer came out and noticed the direction of travel and they did something about it in a meaningful way. And, and I think that then set a bit of a precedent for others to look to and say, OK, that's almost a, a bit of the standard from here on in. And, and we've got to take note of that and bear that in mind and particularly how accessible they are. You know, the shareholder must come first at, at the end of the day in this industry and that should not be forgotten. And I think, as Andrew's said, the Darwinism that we've seen and how boards now are really under scrutiny is a good thing. And that will serve as well, hopefully, going forward. And of course, the other thing which I would highlight would be the fact that, as always, the kind of things that people were expecting to do well at the beginning of the year weren't always the things that did do well. I'm not sure everybody was expecting technology trusts to do as well as they've done, the Magnificent Seven and all the rest of it, uh, both of the big 
tech trust up around 30% this year. And everybody got very excited at the beginning of the year about China. And that's been one of the worst disappointments of the sector this year. So uh, you can never bank on consensus thinking anyway, can you, Andrew, when you're looking ahead for what might do well in the year to come? Well, you certainly can't. Uh, I think whenever humans get involved, there are mistakes made and uh, we're all culpable. And of course, we're all acting on imperfect information. It has been a great surprise, actually, that the technology sector in the US has done so well against this background of rising interest rates. It's really extraordinary. And so you have these fantastic returns from Allianz Technology and Polar Capital Technology, and also Manchester and London, which I think is in the wrong sector, actually. It's in the global sector, but it's a technology trust. It's 97% technology, and it's provided a magnificent return this year. But that kind of concentration, as you've mentioned, in those big tech companies that have really produced nearly all of the returns in the US markets this year, is a bit worrying, but it's certainly not something we forecast. So, um, yes, I think very few people saw that coming. Hopefully, though, there are plenty of investors who just had these trusts sitting in their portfolio as part of a long-term strategy. So that's the reason we have diversified portfolios, because we're not very good at forecasting these short-term movements. Indeed, they're not. I mean, the other final point I was going to bring up was I just looking back at a five-year annualized total returns. It's always interesting to look back over five years. That's a kind of minimum period for any kind of long-term investor to look at. And there are about half a dozen trusts which have delivered a compound annualized return of 20% or more. Interesting enough, the top one is Pershing Square Holdings, which is Bill Ackman's trust, which has also been performing well recently, despite having a very bearish view on the markets. The technology trusts you just mentioned are up there. HG Capital and Oakley Capital also up there, and Ashoka India as well up there. So there have been some very big winners over a long period of time, and I think we should salute them. I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. It's been a a long and, I think, interesting, protracted conversation with the two of you. I'm very grateful to you for your contribution and participation, and we all look forward to having uh, many more exciting things to talk about in the year ahead. Hopefully, the positive trend of the last uh, couple of months will continue, but who knows? There's always things lurking out there, and there are many reasons why you might think you want to be bearish in the current world, climate, geopolitics, and so on. Recession is still a possibility, so there's plenty to play for in the year ahead. Thank you both for your contribution. It only remains for me to thank you all for listening in increasing numbers to this podcast over the last 12 months and to wish you a happy Christmas and profitable new year. We are certainly ending the year on a more positive note than seemed likely earlier and there are some good grounds for being more positive too about 2024. A reminder that we should never lose faith in the ability of the investment trust sector to reform and renew itself after difficult periods like the ones we've just been through. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.